please join me, everyone, in welcoming Jim Moffitt as part of our leadership speaker series. So, Jim, thank you for being with us here today. I'm glad we've had some beautiful weather to share with you here. It is beautiful. So let's begin. Uh, Deloitte has been recognized as one of the largest, if not the largest, global consulting firm, especially in terms of market share. I have here 67,000 consulting practitioners, 37 member countries. So given such a far-flung organization, how do you achieve consistency, connectedness, and power with such a large uh, organization that you're running? Yeah, one short question, right? But really a, a complicated uh, question. Because if, if you look at the world today, we have very different marketplaces, different degrees of maturity, different practices with different levels of maturity. Uh, so it really starts from day one. We, we look for and recruit people that have a, a skill set and a, and a, and a core value set that's very consistent across the globe. In fact, just recently we did a, a culture path survey of all of our consulting practitioners globally. And as part of that effort, we found that along the core value attributes, it was almost identical across the globe. So part, I think it starts on the, on the entry, really looking for and selecting people that we think fit our brand and what we're trying to accomplish in the marketplace. And then that gets reinforced through the way we develop our people, mentor people, and the experiences that we give them um, across the globe. Now, in your one Deloitte initiative, you yep. also have Deloitte University. Right. How, how do those work together? So Deloitte University was a, one of those things during the downturn. We, we did the crazy thing of while everybody else was going virtual, we decided to build a university uh, where we'd use that as a backbone for our leadership development. And you can imagine in a partnership the kind of discussions that you had around that, because essentially the partners had to write a $300 million check to go build that, that university. But what we felt was that we needed a place where we could focus on uh, developing the, the, the world's next leaders, not just for our firm, but for society in general, and that we needed a place that could reinforce not only the type of curriculum that we wanted to teach, but also our culture and our values. And so if you go to DU, if you have the experience, it was actually designed by our consultants. We created an experience that was very similar to what we wanted uh, as we go out and about the world. You can't, if you walk through Deloitte University, you can't help but run into people uh, and meet people. But it was also geared around a way in which we could change the way we developed our curriculum. So our, our sense was if it was going to be the same way we did it at a hotel in Orlando or Las Vegas, then why do it? So we really challenged ourselves to create a whole different level of curriculum that was experientially based, leveraging technology, and, and frankly, our practitioners coming in and doing most of the teaching. And so it's been a, a sea change. Wonderful. So uh, how has your consulting practice and the role of consulting changed with the rapid change in our markets? For example, delivery services in the areas of cloud computing, yeah. mobile and social media channels, big data, other emerging technologies. Yeah, I think this is, this is a great time to graduate from business school, by the way. So I think you, you picked probably the most fascinating time I've seen in my entire 30-year career. Uh, there's so much change and so much disruption going on. Virtually every conversation I have with a senior executive, they're faced with how do I transform my core business and start to now emerge into new and adjacent spaces. And the same thing is happening around professional services firms. So, you know, when I, when I grew up as a consultant, technology was an afterthought. It was, you know, you do the, the restructuring, the strategy, the transformation, you address the people. And if there was some technology, you kind of did that on the back end, and usually it was a back office. Today, if you have a discussion around strategy, it's almost 
always deeply embedded and enabled by technology. They're integrated, and the, and the degree of disruption around that uh, is fascinating. So our clients are expecting us, more so than ever before, to come with IP-enabled assets, so with solutions and products that are, are accelerators for driving transformations, which means that we have to develop ecosystems and partnerships around different industry verticals and topics and come prepared uh, in, a, in a very different way than we have before. So it's taking what we've done, but it's putting a lot more IP, uh, addressing it. It's coming with ecosystems of partners, and it's also changing the way in which we get paid. So we already, we've historically done, we got into the value-based part of the business probably 20 years ago and have done that probably more so than any of our competitors for quite some time. But now we're talking about really wanting situations where we go all in. We're, I'm currently personally involved in a situation where we're taking an equity stake in an early stage healthcare company. Um, and the dynamic that changes in terms of we're actually on the same side of the table with them, same incentives, is actually quite profound. But more and more, I do believe, you'll see consultants being compensated based on the value they create. With these disruptions, what are the implications for talent? And maybe in particular, you know, what should our students be focusing on? Yeah, I think for, um, you know, the, the talent model is probably the most, of all the things that we're faced, it's, you know, we're, look, we're in the talent business. At the end of the day, we're a brand and really smart people. And, um, you know, so part of that is how do, you, how do you keep them engaged? How do you continue to get the right people? And how do you get them excited about the things that they're doing? Uh, so for talent... Um, for, for people like you, you know, getting exposed to, to some of the emerging technologies. How many of you have, have really studied the exponentials? Raise your hand. Okay. I'm going to ask them what are the exponentials. Okay. What are the exponentials? You know? Okay. So I'll, go Google this, right? But go, <laughs> you probably know a lot about this. It's robotics. It's analy cognitive analytics. It's you know, there's, there's the, you know, additive manufacturing, there's you know, genomics, all kinds of different aspects out there, but you're driving transformations and the ability to transform in very, very different ways. And it's, it's impossible today to do strategy for a company without having some idea of what those impacts will be on a different business. So I think for, for people in your shoes, yes, you have to get the basic foundation, but you also have to get prepared and exposed to some of those things so you have an appreciation for the impacts it can have on an organization. So sticking on the theme of disruption, mm -hmm. Deloitte started off primarily as an audit business. Now consulting makes up the lion's share of the, the work and the revenue. Uh, you have a partnership with Kira for data extraction. You have a partnership with a creative digital agency, an acquisition of creative yep. digital agency, Heat. Do you see Deloitte morphing into something else? Yeah, I think you're gonna, it's, it's going to be an evolution. I come back to... You know, part of the part of the, the consulting business is that we we're constantly competing. So you constantly have to transform yourself. If you if we were doing the same things today that we did ten years ago, we'd be out of business. Um, and and what what you're seeing is a, an acceleration of that. So yes, I, mean, I, I first time I went and presented that we were going to do an acquisition of a digital agency. You have to kind of imagine kind of the you know the reaction I got in our executive committee. You're, you're going to go do what? We're going to build commercials. But the whole idea was starting to bring that creative element into what we did around transformations. And so I, I think it will continue to morph as we, as we go along. But it's going to be more business models, probably more early stage partnerships with ecosystem partners, developing solutions uh, around specific industry verticals. We met with, I had my global exec um, 
up in Toronto. We had three clients come in, three different industries, and every one of them talked to us about, one, driving transformation. So doing strategy is interesting, but they want us along for the ride to drive the impact. Um, and they expected us to come with things that we were truly unique and with some IP, some asset, preferably, or it was fine if it was with an ecosystem partner. In fact, they preferred that we did that, so they didn't have to do that. And they wanted us to have a stake in the outcome. And there's three, one was a mining company, one was a bank, and the other was an insurance company. So we're on the topic of what clients are looking for. You've once said, uh, focus what's, on, what's important, not necessarily on what's urgent. So what today do you think the clients are asking that's important rather than urgent? You know, the, you know, the urgent tends to be around short-term operations to me, right? They may have a, you know, some blip in, in an area. I think what's, what's important today is that shift we've been talking about. Most companies, you know, five years ago when we talked to companies about these topics, they, they really didn't understand them at all, really weren't aware of them. And now if you go... Uh, and talk to them about the exponentials and some emerging technologies. They're, they understand them, they just don't know what to do about them. And so I would say an important is starting to think about how you position your organization for the change and take advantage of the change that's, that's there. So let's turn more to uh, maybe the individual level here. And uh, you say that there's no better way to pick up leadership skills than real life experience. Yeah. So uh, what should students use, how should students use the classroom learnings to best stimulate real life? Yeah, I think the more experiential you can make it, the better. And by the way, it doesn't have to be his classroom. I still think the best learning I ever got was working construction for two years, my first couple of years out of college. Anybody, anybody done construction? Okay, you understand what I mean, right? So there's nothing like, you know, working from 7 to 3 in the afternoon in the heat and digging ditches and, and, uh, and realizing that you want to study when you go back to school. Um, <laughs> but, you know, try to simulate... Uh, real life as much as possible. I, I know the I know the curriculum here is set up that way. And I remember I remember the um, the, the thesis program at our school at Anderson required us to do a, a you know a, a consulting project at the end. And I did it with some friends, and I'll I'll tell you we got through it, but it was a complete disaster, <laughs> right? And it was a complete disaster because we never did what you would typically do in a project. We never got upfront clear about what the scope was, what the roles we were going to play, what the outputs, how we divide the work up. And sure enough, two weeks away from the end, we had a mess. Uh, and so we got through it. We survived it. But, but that's an example to me of an experience what well, wasn't all positive. You know, definitely was an example of real life because that is real life. Whether you're in a company or a consulting group, you're going to end up going and having to take on different projects. And, and you have to put some of the discipline around that to make it work. So while we're on the theme of mistakes, uh, yeah. early on in your career, what were the biggest mistakes you made? You know, if, you know first of all, the, I think you learn most from the challenges you have. In fact, one of, one of my partners said something you know, that, that if I was, we were being interviewed by a young consultant, and I had a trite answer, and, and he answered, and I, I've copied it ever since. He said, I'd, I would have let my kids fail more. And, and there is something around that which is, you know, the bumps in the road are what actually strengthen you, right? So um, I learned a lot from those. And, and I know that a lot of the people in here are type A, you're driven, you're motivated, you're going to be your, your harshest critic. Um, but as I think about that in, in my time, probably I would say two things. One is I didn't define my boundaries soon enough. So like in business school or any top, top academic, there's always more you can do. 
in a consulting firm, there's always more you can do, right? And so you have to start to realize that, that one of the skills is to say no. And to say, you know, I've got these three other things, and, and so I can't do that possibly. Um, and, and start to, to start to assert that to some degree. Now, you've got to do it in the right way, and you've got to read the situation correctly. The other is, and this may sound surprising uh, given the role I'm in, but I, I probably would have been more thoughtful about managing my career, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, and I, I did one thing really well, which I always followed my passions. And I, my North Star was not about role, not about title. I didn't really care. I figured that would all kind of work out. So I always wanted to be challenged. I wanted to work on the, the best, most complex opportunity. But as I think about it, if I'd have been a little bit more strategic about it, it, it probably would have been beneficial. And the reality is nobody's looking after your career more than you. You'll have people that want to help and people that want to guide and mentor, but that's not the same as owning your career. So on this theme of mistakes and this idea of yeah. allowing people to, to accept mistakes and the like, I'm curious uh, about the topic of millennials. So, so we have lots of millennials out here in the room. Yeah. Uh, and I was interested to note that Deloitte now is comprised of a majority of millennials. Yeah, 75% of our practice. 75%. Yeah. So, so what has changed or not changed in your management style and philosophy uh, to both attract, retain, and, and motivate this, this new generation? Yeah, so one of, the, one of the advantages of working in a consulting firm is you can hire a bunch of consultants to go look at that. So we actually <laughs> we took, a, we took a group of our, our, our manager advisory council and had them study that problem. And you know, what, what really came out was one of, well, a number of topics, but what stood out for me was, was engagement and, and how uh, the practitioners really wanted to connect and, and what they were interested in. And what was, what was also interesting was probably more so than my generation. The millennials had a much better sense of what they wanted and expected from a career, and they're willing to tell you about it. And so I, I remember sitting in a, an audience like this. I was doing a presentation in our Boston office, and I had one of our senior managers stand up a little bit negatively about millennials. And, you know, they're really not committed. They're not. And, and you know, I said, you know, I, I respect that, but the reality, I have a different view. Maybe it's because i got three kids that are all millennials. But, um, one, I, I think they absolutely are committed. They're, they work really hard. Um, they're smart as can be. Um, but they're focused on different things, and they're motivated by purpose, and they want to be recognized for the leadership contributions that they can provide today. And they don't want it to be tenure-based. They want to be, see an organization that's investing in them and in their development and cares about them. And so if you start to max, mix in those elements, then you end up with a tremendous workforce, highly talented. Um, and then the way they engage, we talk about connecting a connectual intelligence, which the way we grew up was in audiences like this, where you'd have you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations or group discussions. In reality, networks are, are virtual, and you know, social media certainly is a way to communicate. So you had to start to open up different channels of communication. But, um, but I think it's a, it's a powerful workforce. I love the fact that they're, they're proactive about what they want. And I think it's been a, a good change for our organization. We've always been purpose-led, but I think this really put a sharp star on that for us. Mm -hmm. oh. Not only is your workforce young, but it's also very global. Yeah. And in your, in your global role that you have now, how has your thinking changed uh, similarly in regards to management philosophy and the like? Well, you know, you, and we, the conversation we had at lunch earlier is you have to, um, you, you have to assimilate the differences and nuances uh, of every culture. And so, you know, you, you, 
we were talking about that you can talk about Europe, but Europe's not really Europe. You know, there, there's a, a bunch of different cultures and countries across Europe, and they act very differently, and what motivates them is different. Uh, you go into Asia Pacific. So every country, you have to take time to, to listen and learn and understand and appreciate. So we have an architecture, a framework of how we consult. We leverage IP and tools and training across the globe. But if you don't adapt that to the local market and don't take advantage of that, you really are, are going to miss the boat. And so I think it's that appreciation. The other is, um, despite differences in market size and maturity of practice and maturity of marketplaces, there are really smart people everywhere, right? And, and you have to go in with the mindset um, that regardless of where you come from, that there are really smart people, and, and if you listen, they have something to contribute. And I think one of the nuggets is how do you, how do you kind of open yourself up to take on and, and absorb the innovation that comes from different parts around the globe. In fact, partly, sometimes they're smaller or they're less mature countries. Um, they're able to do some things you could never do um, if you're doing a consulting project for Goldman Sachs, right, as an mm -hmm. example. And so there's some real innovation, but you have to be willing to listen and take the time to appreciate it. In general, Deloitte is known as a leader in inclusiveness. Can you speak to some of the best practices that you use, uh, specifically to women and minorities uh, in the professional practices? Yeah, again, something we leveraged our consultants to go look at. And, uh, you know, the best thing that we've found, and this is like, this is a complicated topic, and I think we're as good as anybody in the world, but we're nowhere near where we'd like to be. And, and if you're in a room, sitting around a table with executives, uh, it, too often, I'm in rooms with people that look like me, and I, I will tell you, it's not, it's, it's diversity of thinking that you miss, right? It's people with different backgrounds and perspectives and viewpoints that make every conversation better. So as good as we are, we're not where we need to be, and it's something we'll continue to push on. But the number one thing we found was sponsorship. That when you look at underrepresented minorities and women, they don't have the natural number of sponsors that, that white men do. And um, we're not quite sure why that is demographically. And so what we've started to do is institute more formalized sponsorship programs. Sponsorship, different than mentorship. Mentors are ones that you go to for coaching and advice. Sponsorships are the ones that are actually trying to advocate for you to get a role, get a position. They're going to be the ones that say, you should go do this because you really need to be stretched in this area. And, and, and have, they have your back. Well, that happens. And they go open the door and say, you, you know, this person's going to get, it's a very different thing and it doesn't happen naturally. The challenge with that and the thing is we work through this is scaling it. But I think that's the best thing, that's the best thing I've seen. Now, there's a lot around this in terms of you know, work-life balance. We did some other things around flexibility and predictability for all of our practitioners. Uh, but, but it was really geared towards what we do is really complex, it's demanding, but there can be some flexibility and predictability that you can control if at the beginning of a project you sit down and work with your team to essentially build that in. So if you need the flexibility to go to a dance class or to participate in a symphony or you want to go do something with your kids, if you plan that in, you're able to accommodate it more. Those, those are probably the two things that, that I think are most impactful. Uh, in 2014, you were interviewed by the Washington Post, <laughs> and they asked you, are there too many consultants in the world? Got to remember, you should never be uh, taped on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
And you said, I suppose yeah. so, yes. Yeah, so. I, and I, it's, I think it's true. I think it's, you know, anybody can be a consultant, right? And so, and even for the, the consultants from, whether they're boutique firms or from large firms like ours, you know, I think the key thing is that you should make sure you only consult on things that you should be consulting on. I think one of the best tests for a consultant is to say, no, we're not the right firm for that. Like, we have really smart people. We could probably figure out most things. But the reality is we have areas where we have deep expertise and, and we're better than anybody on the planet. And then there's some things where, where we're just not as well suited. And so part of that is, yes, it's too easy to call yourself a consultant. Uh, the other part is, I think, the discipline to, to say, yeah, we really are not the firm to help you on this. Now, I've done that in my career a few times, and I tell you, every time I've done that, it's enhanced the relationship. Because I've said up front, you know, love to do it. I know, you know, the firm, but we don't have the right people right now to do that, and, and I'm not convinced we can do the job you need to get done. Does that apply to our students as well who are looking to become consultants? What, what advice would you give them looking uh, for consulting jobs? I th well, I think, first of all, you know, hopefully you spend a lot of time really making sure it's what you want to do. Um, I, I think it's, um, you know, most of the firms I know, we, we spend as much time trying to allow you to get to know us so that you get a perspective on what it's going to be like uh, working with us. But yeah, I think you have to be willing, you have to be willing to say, you know, that that's not the right firm for me. And, you know, I know in business school, whether it's iBanking or consulting firms or market, there's a lot of pressure to get those jobs. But I think you have to think internally about what it is that you really want to do. Now, I do think it's a great way to start your career. Yeah, I mean, I, the experiences you get are phenomenal, and usually the programs are set up that way. But I think, yes, I think sometimes you have to be willing to say no. In terms of impact, as you talked about, you know, doing the best job for a, a client organization, mm -hmm. uh, how do you gauge whether your consulting fee in, in, against metrics of impact and value creation? How do you know that you are adding the most value? Yeah, we actually we actually changed our um, our goaling and evaluation system for our partners and directors about four or five years ago, where we were at the end of the year. Yeah, there were metrics, but we also had. Uh, a, a whole aspect based on the impact people were creating. And so whether it was with our clients, with our, our people, or our communities, it, it, sometimes it's very, very qualitative, sometimes it's quantitative. So if I'm doing a supply chain project, usually it can be very quantitative. The, 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 the project we're doing for this early stage healthcare company is going to be based on stock price appreciation when they go public. And so, yes, but some things are, are, are much more qualitative. So in those situations, we try to be very specific around the outcomes that we look to. And we work with the, with the clients to, to define those pretty specifically. The things that we've done, if I put them on our value-based program, the things that we do in those situations, which was, you know, I'd say it's 20% of our portfolio, maybe 25. Um, it's interesting, we've only had one project in my entire career that has never met its expectations. And I'm convinced that what changes is it's the clarity of alignment around expectations between the client and our teams. You spend more time up front, okay, what are we really gonna do? What's your role? What's my role? What's the outcome? How are we gonna measure success? And I, I think that, that, that discipline is actually what, what drives it. So I, I frankly would, would do VBB on virtually any 
project we do. So did I hear correctly? You said you had one project that yeah. didn't meet That's expectations. One, yeah, one, one that didn't. Yeah. That's pretty didn't, impressive track yeah. record. I mean, it's 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 pretty phenomenal when you look across. Uh, it, it doesn't mean everyone hit the top payout, but there, you know, none failed, right? Except that one. Um, and, and so I think it, it, it is something that's got to be permeated. You know, I'd like to do more across all of our practice. Well, at this time, I'm going to open it up to some questions from some students. Uh, we had some students submit some questions beforehand, so I'm going to call them. And then if we have time, we might open it up uh, to, to the whole audience. So, uh, Duke, you want to kick us off here? Mr. Moffitt, on behalf of the student body, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. We've gathered questions from a number of clubs and students, and broadly speaking, they fall into questions on industry, on Deloitte, and your career. And I have a couple okay. questions here on industry. So the first question is, do you see a trend in the industry towards longer term and more end-to-end -end consulting engagements as compared to pure strategy focused? Yeah, and I think that's been emerging for a while. I think. Um, you know, clients are tired of the PowerPoint and just kind of do the, uh, or whatever format you want to use today, they're, they're tired of kind of the study. Um, and I, I, I still remember the first strategy project I did that we actually implemented. And I, I remember realizing, wow, it's a heck of a lot harder to actually make this thing work. And, and <laughs> you start to get into the details and you realize the complexity, particularly around adoption within an organization, a large complex organization. So the power of having to go through that um, stood out to me. And I think clients are more and more having an expectation that they want more than just the study. They want you to be there to drive the end-to-end -end transformation and be part of the impact. Thank you. <clears throat> Second question we have is, compared to the rest of the big four, Deloitte seems to have a competitive advantage in advisory and consulting services since retaining those services in the early 2000s. How does Deloitte plan to sustain that competitive advantage while companies like PwC are bulking up in those service lines? Yeah, I mean, it's um, yeah, a 10-year gap is hard to make up, right? So, um, you know, we, you know, today, you know, I think of our competition in, in a very different frame um, than, than the big four uh, because of our, our positioning. But I will tell you, we've got to continue to evolve our, our business aggressively. All the, if, if I look at all the, the competitors, and, and I would say that there are three right now that are, are positioned to be the leader going forward. We're one of those three. Um, we have the positioning, I think, that the others aspire to because we're built around transformation. So the point you mentioned around strategy through execution, we're, our model is built for that. It has been forever. The other firms are, are aggressively driving to that space. But if I put as a, a broad brush around all of the firms, every one of them has to uh, evolve in certain ways. Most of us are dealing with that, that transition from being a pure services, fee-for-service type organization to one that is building IP, becoming, I won't say a software company, but certainly more embedded solutions with partnerships and going to market around value. Nobody has done that at scale. Nobody has done services and products at scale successfully. So that's part of that journey. And we all have different challenges depending on where you are on the globe in terms of filling in the capability gaps in important markets, particularly emerging markets. So if you talk about Southeast Asia and China, we've been in China aggressively for over a decade and it's still a complicated place. I don't think there's any consulting firm that's making a lot of money in that marketplace, but but to not be in that marketplace, I think, is, is missing out on you know, the next 10 years or 15 years. 
I'd say the same thing in, in India, and I'd say the same thing in Southeast Asia. So part of it is filling in those capability gaps across the board as well. I'm curious, as you move more into kind of uh, execution and in partnership with your clients, yeah. uh, how do you balance uh, standardization versus customization in your, in your offerings? Yeah, and it really depends. We have, you know, part of it is that there's a spectrum from solutions to products, right? Solutions are things that we have IP embedded, but there's an expectation it'll be tailored for that client. Um, we try to be very careful about not trying to be cookie cutter from one to the other. One of our competitors was kind of known for coming up with a solution and just kind of doing that across the entire industry. Uh, but when we get to the product side, then, then we're talking about things that we, it's an embedded piece of IP, generally has some analytics in it with IP that's usually around an industry vertical of some sort, that it's really more the insights that come out of it rather than the product. And in those cases, those are more hardened and more consistent with less customization. Paige? Great. So these questions are um, Deloitte-specific. Okay. So Deloitte currently promotes their digital projects as a competitive advantage for future growth. From what you are allowed to disclose, what are some of the biggest disruptors in this space? How is Deloitte positioned to play in this changing segment? Well, I mean, that's a pretty broad frame around digital. Um, <laughs> I, I think what's happening, um, if, you, if you look at cognitive analytics, machine learning, if I, if I put across a broad brush, um, I think the advances that you're seeing in that space, and it goes really across all of them, I think are going to be truly disruptive across virtually every industry. Conversation, conversations we're starting to have, have now are, are thinking about the impact on the workforce. So you start to think about the future of work in an environment where things are automated. Um, certainly a large part of what we do today will get automated. Um, so I, I think that one, you know, if you think about those, that's the one that I think will be most pervasive. But you can add that across any of them, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, you know, IoT. Think about the autonomous car and some of the things that are enabled by that. I'm you know, you talk to insurance companies, they're saying their car insurance is going to go away in 10 years. That's been their cash cow. It's, it's, it permeates everything. But if you think about that would be the one I would, I would drive the most is that one. I have to ask, since we are here at a university, yeah. you know, are we in trouble? Well, I think, I think um, it's interesting because I, I do some work at UCLA, and, and this is um, one of the things I think universities, I, I have a view that either you need to embrace the disruption or face the disruption. And so I think any academic institution that is not out in front of how to leverage the, I think the asset that's at UVA is, is more than the face-to-face -face curriculum here. So yes, I think there is, there is opportunity here for, for the university. At the same point, you can't replace all of this, right? There's some magic that happens you know, on campus when you bring people together, but to think about how to take advantage of it, yes. But it's comp I know in the, the discussions we've had, the hardest, the hardest group to change is, is the academics, actually. Worse than the healthcare system? It's, it's right there, right I'll tell you. Neck, right there. And, then, and then right neck to neck with partnerships, right? <laughs> so. And so building on the point of technology disruption, um, with the advent of software-based analytic tools um, used with clients, do you think that's possible that it'll replace pure consulting talent? It's going to, uh, you know, I think a large part of what we do will get automated. Um, but, you know, I, again, I've, I'm, a, I'm a believer that uh, innovation drives growth, and, and so it will create different opportunities. Now, if we stood still and do, didn't do anything else, but that's where you start to see the model shift. The model shifts from 
So put it in a simple case, when I first did strategy, a lot of that was just going out and trying to gather research on data, right? Well, that's called Google today, right? So, you know, that's gone away. We still do strategy projects, but you come at it in a very different way and you add in different elements. So I think the key thing is you have to continue to evolve. But I would say that virtually, in fact, we're doing this right now. We're going through, through all of our service lines and we're going through the process of automating them. And, and embedding analytics and digitizing them uh, for the new, new, uh, you know, the new era. So your biography mentions building out pro bono support services yeah. that make a societal impact. How do you assess these projects that you and your company are willing to support and stand behind? First of all, it was the best thing I ever did when I was at the firm. Most enjoyable was uh, getting the opportunity to 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 lead that you know, with one of my. One of my favorite partners, Diane Davies, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago from, from cancer, and um, I always think of her when that when that comes up because we did a lot of lot of work on that together. Um, you know, one of the the breakthrough for us is we treated them like any project. We we said we're gonna if we're gonna actually do this, it's gonna have to go through the same kind of discipline, same kind of rigor of any project. We're gonna measure impact the same way. Uh, it's going to have to, you know, people are going to get credit the exact same way. So if, if you're a partner, you got sales credit, you got managed revenue credit, you got credit for all the things you would expect around a project. So we treated them the same way. And once we did that, um, it was very different. Then we also put a national lens on it to make sure it was strategically aligned with the areas that we were most interested in. At that point, it was education and health and human services. It's morphing a little bit right now, but, but those will always be at the core of what we do. Do you have any specific projects that particularly stand out to you? That uh... you know, we did a couple recently for the for the White House. Um, and one, and there are two that came out of it. One was around um, it was it was around the long term unemployed at the last in the downturn. And if you if you you know watch the statistics on that, um, you know once you were unemployed for you know I forget the number of months now. I want to say forty months. Um, 30, 40 months, you, the, the chances of getting reemployed were very, very low. And, and there was clearly some bias built into that. And, and so we actually, it was a, cons a typical ecosystem. The White House, we found out, was a great convener. You know, if, if, if the president calls, people came, right? But they couldn't do much else. Um, and so we, we did it with partnership with some, some um, you know, governmental agencies and support organizations, and then with some local communities, and actually put together an ecosystem. We did the Rockefeller Institute, and came up with some different approaches for how you dealt with that, um, and, and playbooks for how you, how you deal with that. That then morphed into another project, which is around upskilling. So this whole livable wage issue, where you have somebody that comes in at an entry-level position, how do you provide a path to a livable wage, and so how do you do some things that that upskill them and, and and get them in a more sustainable role? So those are those are both good examples. Me. Lastly, before we open it up, we have a few questions on more of a personal level. Good, we got to get lightened up. It's a family. <laughs> uh, so you joined uh, in 1987, not to date it, but uh, at a level senior consultant that many of us will join. Uh, post-business school, was there a certain mentor or project or uh, time at Deloitte that most catalyzed your career? You know, I, I, I was lucky to have a lot of great mentors. Um, I really, really was. And so, you know, I look back on it, it's, you know, funny story the first day. This is, I'll get to the meat of this. I'm, I'm, I'm from Southern California. I eat healthy, you know, right? So I, 
I went to, and I was, I had no money, right? So I show up and I bring a brown bag of lunch, right? The senior partner in the office, a woman by the name of Lois Evans, she was probably the most senior, one of the most senior leaders we had in the entire firm. She, she, she puts her arm around my shoulder and she goes, Jim, we don't do brown bag lunches here. <laughs> and her point, her point was that we go to lunch together. We actually talk and we, you know, use it as a time to do that. And so, uh, you know, it was one of those, okay, I'll never forget that point. But for, for me professionally, I, 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 I shifted my career to, to go deal with troubled companies. And I, so I was on a certain path, but I had a couple of people that I knew were world-class consultants. We were preeminent in that space. The work was really interesting, and I had no experience in it at all, right? So I... You know, I, I was willing to invest if they were willing to invest, and so I took a kind of a year kind of lateral to work on some of these projects, and what I found out there was it was the, the, the best experience for a young MBA coming out. You know, troubled assets, are they viable? If they are viable, what's the strategy? You know, and how do you, how do you take them forward and get them to be sustainable? And that was probably the, the and had some great mentors around that. And then this question, uh, we've asked many consultants before, uh, but after 30 years and three children, how do you balance both your personal and professional commitments? And what, have, what is some advice and uh, you know, best practices that you would give to this audience? Yeah. You know, I usually start out every talk with a picture of my family, and I do that intentionally um, because I think it's really important that all of you learn now what I didn't learn until I was a few years into my career, which is you have to kind of set the boundaries around your life. It gets back to, you know, learning, those, to, learning to say no. Um, you have to understand what's important, and you have to start managing your personal life and your professional life. And one, of, one of my early mentors, you get good advice and bad advice, and I remember the, the mantra was that you have to be able to separate your personal life from your professional life. Well, I've tried that for 30 years, and I've never figured out how to make that work, right? So the reality is you have to figure out how to have both a personal life and a professional life. And so um, you know, my wife, Cynthia, who I met in business school, is the love of my life. And I'm the luckiest man in the world that she is. I st still can't imagine why she's married to me. Um, and every time I come home, I put that lock and the key in the lock, and I'm just as, as the lock hasn't been changed, so I'm I'm good, <laughs> right? Um, but I, you know, as an example, she she had um, I can talk about it now. She was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer this past March, and I remember her calling me in the middle of a meeting that I was having and uh, and and give me the news, and and I you know I had to go home, go back into that meeting, and, and act like nothing happened for the next couple hours. But I immediately changed my schedule for the next, I mean, I, and by the way, our, our, our firm is phenomenal at, look, if there's an issue, you, we've got lots of people who can take care of it, you know, so take care of that. So you, you have to do what's important. So I, I never missed a single doctor's appointment. Actually, I called into one from London because the doctor canceled when I was in London. But other than that, I've never missed an appointment. And when she was going through surgery, you know, I, I was off the road for a month. And I just you know, I blew it up, didn't give it a thought. And, and those are the type of things you have to, you never want to sit there and say, oh, I wish I had done that. And, and so I think one of the, you have to understand what's important to you, understand that it'll change, and you have to manage it just like anything else. I've got three kids, and 
you know, I think if you talk to him, I, even though I traveled as I've traveled my entire career, I have. I probably, you know, have had two years of my entire career I've been in town. But I would say that they would all tell you, and you can ask one of them because he's here, right? Um, I spent more time with them, quality time with them. It happened to be on weekends and then fathers who were in town seven days a week. And so you have to make the time to do it. Thank so, you. Yeah. Uh, so now we'll open it up to a few questions. So as we are considering our careers, what advice do you give to your kids about choosing their career? Uh, is it consulting? What, what advice do you tell them about choosing a career? You know, it, it goes back to my North Star, despite the fact that I said it wasn't that strategic about what I did. Um, I... I you know, you're going to be doing, working for a long time. And so find something you love. I mean, really take the time. A lot of it is being introspective. And, and what is it that you really enjoy doing? What is it that excites you? And finding a career that matches that. And then understanding that, I remember, <laughs> you've probably all done this, right? I had, I had, you know, six different offers, and I was comparing them on a spreadsheet with 15 different criteria, and I couldn't make up my mind, you know? And part of it was, you know, it's a life and death situation. You know, I, I got to make the right choice. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I've actually stayed in the same firm because um, I think I'm the only now member of my business school class that only that, that is still at their original firm. The reality is, is that most people change after a year or two, and we certainly want everybody to stay. But we're, we're smart enough to know that we want them to really have the best professional experience possible. So if they choose to go, that they still feel connected to our firm. So I think start, if you're not happy, it's tough to be successful. Yeah. My, my number one. So uh, first of all, thanks for coming today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, there have been some major events in the world yep. in the last week or so. Yeah, uh, I was wondering when this one was going to come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and really, it's been happening for a while. You could yeah. probably go back to the, to the Occupy Wall Street movement, yep. but there's been a tide pushing in a certain direction yep. and a lot of fear. Uh, now you're seeing isolationism really coming to the forefront with the election here in the U.S., with yep. Brexit and the rise of the National Front in France. Um, I would imagine that corporations know this is happening and know it has a, possibility, a, a potential to impact their top and bottom lines and that they need to do something and they need to do it quick. Um, so my, part, my question is, is two parts. First is, how are corporations viewing this? Um, and second is, what can business leaders be doing to, to, to change the narrative of fear around globalization? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I think most were surprised, right? So I think everybody's early in their formation around it. Um, but I think it's, it's a broader topic and one that I feel passionately about. I, first of all, business has a terrible narrative. As a, as a general rule, business does not do a good job of communicating all the things that, that we do for society. Uh, all that said, I think business needs to be much more proactive in driving the agenda. And, you know, the, the pro bono piece for me was the most um, impactful thing. I've done lots of great things in my career, but the, 
when you get a chance to go work with organizations, and White House is, is a signature one, but some of the best ones have been smaller organizations that just didn't have the capability and they were really impacting the lives of people in meaningful ways. Um, I don't think you can get there if business doesn't play an active role and, and set an example and, and basically not tolerate certain types of behavior. And, and if business doesn't engage in a more meaningful way, and by the way, I think academia has a lot to do with this as well, um, then the problems won't get solved. I think, put aside the politics, uh, I think we're all, as a country, going to have to be very deeply engaged over the next four years to make sure that the right kind of policies get implemented and, and, and don't allow things that are draconian to get done. I'm, I'm curious on the same theme. We talked a little bit about, you know, you have a very global uh, um, employment sure. base. You know, what's, your, what's your message to your, your employees at this point? Well, you know, it's, look, it's, um, you know, for our employees, it was a bit of a shock, right? I'm more, I'm more worried about our younger practitioners. I, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned at lunch, my daughter, who's 24, she called me up and she said, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. You know, I, 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 I can't imagine what just happened. You know, for... For a young woman in particular, and so we talked through that. So I think part of that is actually having open dialogue and talking about it. Um, and look, it, it's it, there, there's a lot of negative, but there's some positive. Um, but I think there is a point here that says that that um, you know we're not going to sit we're not going to sit on the sidelines. We're going to have an active voice and proactive voice around things that matter, whether it be around diversity, around uh, Im immigration. I mean, our country was founded on immigration. I mean, read the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, right, for God's sake. So I, I, think, um, I think corporations can't sit on the sideline. Yeah. It's a great question. Others, come on, you can ask me anything. Ask me about kids. <laughs> Let's see. What are some of your favorite books? My favorite books? Favorite books. <laughs> books. Gosh, so many. Um, so if I'm just, if I'm, if I, you know, look, if I'm just doing vegging stuff, I do, do mysteries. But I, um, you know, I, 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 you know if, I, if I think across the, the spectrum, probably the one, um, you know, one that jumps out. I, I'm, I'm a Malcolm Gladwell fan. Right, so I think some of that stuff resonated with me, maybe because I, I was a guy that always had to apply myself a lot, right, around things. Um, some of the some of the books on on Steve Jobs have been pretty interesting. I'm now reading the one on on, uh, on Bezos. So I, you know, it's it's a mixture. Um, you know, I'm a fan of of I always I should not say it this way. I'm a history buff as it relates to World War II, so, so there's some things around that. I, you can't say you're a fan of World War II, right? So, <laughs> I, I, but, but I think some of the leadership that, that was exemplified during that era was, was quite interesting to me. You know, and I, I, I'm intrigued by situations where you take normal people and they do extraordinary things. Because um, I think the reality is that most people have the ability to do extraordinary things if they are willing to take the chance and they're given the right support. And if you have that mindset, I think the, the world is, is, is your oyster. Is there a particular World War II uh, general or uh, states, statesman that uh, stands out I, to you? I, I, I'm a Churchill fan. Churchill. You know, if they think about the cards he was dealt, 
you know, he talked about if somebody was right for the time, right, uh, and not right for the next time, as you know, as evidence, but but right for the time, the complexity of what was faced at that point, yeah, would be. Any lessons from Churchill's story that you can take back to uh, Deloitte? Nothing that nothing that jumps to mind right off the bat. I mean, I just, actually, I just think the way. The power of the of language, right? The hardest thing as a as a senior leader you do is communicate effectively to when you talk about seventy, eighty thousand people in different places around the world and get them excited about the vision you're trying to create. And think about some of the the the, the topics and the, the speeches that Churchill did that are you know just unbelievable in terms of pulling a nation together. Uh, that, that to me, is a, is a true gift. Um, so it would be some of those things. Other questions? Yeah. Let's just make sure we get the microphone down there. Oh, we have one up. Sorry, we have one up there. Yeah. Uh, recently, the, the Deloitte logo has gone through a huge rebrand. I mean, you switched from uh, blue font to black font. Um, could you explain, <laughs> the, <laughs> could you explain the, the thinking behind the rebrand? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's, that actually has to do with the digital, making it more digital friendly. I mean, there's a lot around the the brand, but that's you know you start to look at things that actually project well in you know different different uh, different mediums and different devices. That's really what that was about. I'd love to say it was more science. They're actually if talk to the brand guys. And trust me, they, it, you know, it's the most exciting thing they ever did. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that's what's behind that. Were you engaged in that decision, or was it more of a, like, you guys figure it out? Yeah, well, I was, I, was, I was part of it. it not, that was not, I didn't spend a ton of time on it, but, um, but, but I was apprised of it. Right. Get some questions down here. Deloitte's global member firm structure is a little bit more complex relative to a lot of its competitors. How has your role changed going from U.S. consulting CEO to global consulting CEO? And what are some of the things that you're doing in your role now to uh, make sure that Deloitte can adapt nimbly to the global demands of your clients? So, I mean, that's the, the reason I'm still here is that my job is to globalize. Um, so the, um, the member firm structure is, is positive in certain ways because it gives you local accountability and, uh, and for the, the partnerships feel accountable and they're in touch with their local markets. But it is constraining in your ability to scale, share investment and IP consistently across the globe. So that's my job is to basically globalize the business. Um, we took a, a big step towards that last year and laying the framework around that. We're starting to activate and operationalize it this year and I expect it to be up and running full speed next year. And then it'll be about filling in capability gaps. But it's something that we have to address. It's um, in the markets that we compete, um, that's when, when I looked at this five or six years ago, there were two things that, that jumped out. One was, was that issue around globalization and the other was what I was talking to you about about innovation, kind of combining innovation, IP, uh, products and assets along with what we do to drive transformations. And so that both of those come together in a certain way. But that's something, you know, like I said, the, reason, the only reason I'm here is because that's one more, one more mountain to take. What time for one more question? Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, since this week in a strategy class, we are talking a lot about the sustainable competitive advantage. So do you think in consulting industry, there's uh, any like advantage, uh, competitive advantage that is sustainable? Because I thought uh, 
consulting interest is more about the people business. So what do you think is the most uh, uh, different competitive advantage? Maybe it's, maybe it's sustainable or maybe not. Well, you know, sustainable is, is all a matter of time, right? So I think every company that we work with, we always talk about differentiation. So if we did some research on this a couple of years ago, a couple of my partners, they looked at what, what was it that drove sustainable uh, financial performance, exceptional financial performance, and they, they got it down to two things. One is you had to have a differentiated value proposition on something other than cost, and you had to have a growth platform. And I think they're interrelated. So when we did our strategy um, five, six years ago, and we're refreshing it now, um, we spent a lot of time thinking about what it was that differentiated us and, and making sure that that nuance came out. And, and when you really kind of get behind the curtains and underneath the nuances between us and the firms that we view as competitors, um, it's the breadth of what we can do combined with depth in sectors and our culture. Um, you know, you talk about collaborative leadership. Uh, it's, um, you know, an ability to work effectively up and down and across organizations and drive change. change I would love to stand up in front of our group and say, we're all going to go right and have everybody go right. Well, in a professional services firm, people say, why right? Why not left? Why not back? Why, you know? So you have to work up and down and across organizations to drive change. Now, that sounds simplistic, but when we actually studied it and we looked at where our competitors were positioned and how they differentiated themselves, there actually was a place for us. Now, that, that's changing, though. McKinsey's aggressively trying to drive down to where we are. Accenture is, is trying to come upstream from their outsourcing business and become a consultancy again. You have the reemergence of some of the, the big four uh, trying to get back into the game. You have other, other firms you know, getting into the space. I mean, who would ever thought that you'd have WVP you know, buying you know, um, you know, firms and trying to get into the, the consultative space? Probably they never thought we'd buy a digital agency either, right? So, so you're starting to see the convergence around a lot of this stuff. So what, what we you know, differentiate around today won't necessarily be the answer tomorrow. So I get to ask the last question. Okay. Uh, it's one I always like to ask. Uh -oh. So what one bit of advice do you have for our students in the audience here to help them on their careers? Only one. I, you know, I don't do well. You can do more than one, but we only have about another minute. No, I mean, I, 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 I'll start with it again. Find your passion. Find what you, you know, really be reflective. Find something you want to do. And, and, and then um, the other part is don't be afraid to be bold and take risks. You know, I, I, the, the best things I did in my, while I wasn't strategic, I was not afraid to take risks. And, and I never, ever once, uh, you know, thought about roles and positions. Don't let roles and positions define you. Don't let a type of career path define you. Find something that you're passionate about that you want to do. And I think the rest will work out. Add a little bit of strategy in there as well, but, but those would be, those would be the, the main piece of advice I would give you. But if you do, too, many, too many people are they're too conservative. In fact, one of the biggest challenges I have with CEOs is they're too conservative. They're not investing enough for the future. You can't grow without investment. The biggest challenge we had in the downturn was, I believe, a lack of investment. Given the complexity of what the world looks like today, if you don't invest, you're not going to grow. It's the number one challenge that, we've, that CEOs talk about for the last six years is growth. So start in your own career, start thinking about being willing to take some risks.
when you're, when you're young. When you have a mortgage and you have three kids, you got to be a little bit more cautious. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. I know thank me, or Duke has some final words for us here. Thanks again for joining us today, Mr. Moffitt. On behalf of the university, we have a small parting gift. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.